0: It's such a privilege to be here this morning looking into um, God's Word on this Easter uh, Sunday morning. And a very warm welcome to friends who are here for the first time or who has not been with us uh, for a while. The theme for today is called Resurrection Changes Everything. Resurrection Changes Everything. Before we start, would you um, pray with me to our God um, that He will guide us today heavenly father thank you for this first easter and what it means what it means to us please grant us a clear mind as we look into your word open our hearts so that your holy spirit will work in us through the words spoken by our lord jesus christ and written down by his eyewitnesses amen now for 2000 years christians have been celebrating easter It's the day where christians we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the day where all Christians will look back into the past in order to look forward into our future. It is the day where grief turns to joy. It's the day where fear turns to peace. It's the day where doubt claims by faith uh, and where faith claims um, doubt and uh, its power. But more than that, it is a day when the humanity is given and is offered a relationship that we never deserved. So this morning, I would like to invite you to journey with me back to the first Easter and see what that day um, meant for the eyewitnesses and how this day means everything to us. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it up. Um, we'll be looking uh, quite closely to the passage today. And uh, let me begin with John 20, verse 1. In fact, if you want to read with me, you can. John 20, verse 1. Early on, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So now this is the third day after Jesus was hung on the cross, pronounced dead, confirmed with a spear in his side. Uh, he was wrapped and placed in a tomb. But guess what? When, Jesus, when Mary went to the tomb this early Sunday morning, she found that the stone had been rolled away. Now, who, who has rolled the stone away, and how did it uh, roll away, this big, huge stone? Uh, Mary has no idea. It's not uncommon, though, in Jesus' time, that there are tomb raiders. Or tomb robbers. In fact, it is common enough for the Roman Empire to enact uh, laws, capital punishments, for tomb robbers. But here they are early in the morning while still dark. Mary and some of the other women were there. And they found that the tomb uh, was, um, the stone was rolled away from the tomb. And so fear has gotten over them. And they ran back to those that they could most depend on. The disciples of Jesus. And they said to them, verse 2, So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Now, all all kinds of questions and emotions are stirred up when Peter and the other disciples heard the news and started to run towards the tomb, and uh, when I was reading this, uh, a very beautiful picture came to my mind, and I would like to uh, show it to you, this is an 1898 painting by the late Eugene Bernard, it's called John and Peter running to the tomb, and I think this picture helps to capture beautifully the expression of verse 2 and kind of verse 3 that we have read. In fact, the picture, if you look at it, it kind of captures what had happened in chapter 18 and 19 of John before this event. So what has happened in John 18? John 18, the soldiers came to arrest Jesus. Peter was trying to protect him. He even took a sword and sliced off the ear of Malchus. Uh, But later on, when he tried to follow, fear gripped him. And for three times, when he was challenged, he said, I do not know this man. And that... Um, Three denials was completed with the crow of the rooster. In that moment, Peter has denied the very friend, the very master, the very Lord that he declared, I will die with you. But there he is. He denied Jesus three times. And Bible has no record and we can probably believe that he never had a chance to tell Jesus or speak to Jesus from that time that he denied him till Jesus died on the cross, so you can imagine the one who loved Jesus and has denied him for three, three times, the kind of horrendous shame, guilt, grief, sorrows uh, remains unresolved. But when he heard this, um, this news that the tomb was empty, once again the excru- ex- excruciating emotions coupled by his love for Jesus and the loss of Jesus. It's just hard to imagine, but but Eugene tries to paint it. Uh, as he runs there, there was the expression mix of bewilderment, possibly hope, mixed with all kinds of emotions, knowing what he had done, but yet he must go to the tomb to take a look. And along with him was John. And what's the story for John? John was the one, just one chapter before this, that Jesus looked at him and looked at Mary and says, woman. This is your son, and this is your mother. So John was the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was the one that is still caring for Jesus' mother, and there he was running. And I think the picture kind of paints an expression that words can't really describe, but it leaves us to imagine as we read the Bible what was going through the two of them. So look at verse 4. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight in the tomb. He saw the strips of linen laying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still laying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple whom had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. He saw and believed. What did John believe? First of all, the linens were there, tells them that um, there wasn't any robbers that came in. Because linen at that time are very expensive. And which robber will come in to steal a corpse, take the time to unroll the linen, place the expensive linen there, and just leave with a naked corpse? So the first thing is, he probably believed, but it's not that the robbers have come. But what else does he believe? Verse 9 actually tells us, at that point, they still did not understand from scriptures. So John, he probably didn't have a complete understanding that the scriptures have confirmed that Jesus must die and Jesus must be raised uh, from the dead. So perhaps John, at that time when he saw the empty tomb and the linens, he began to believe. Perhaps Jesus might have really been risen the way that he has said it. But what it meant to him, perhaps is not clear. After all, as he looked at the empty and the tomb with the linen and the cloth. Um, it, it looks a bit strange because they don't have a lot of experience with resurrection, right? How many of you have experienced with resurrection? They have one, which is John 11. They saw Lazarus. But when Lazarus was risen from the dead, he came out like a mummy just trying, uh, how to move, like with all the spices and all the things. And Jesus says, you're going to help him to unwrap. So the only experience they have of resurrection was that of Lazarus in John 11. But here, the clothes are there, the head cloth is there, and uh, it's empty. And and John and Peter, as they head back, it's kind of an anticlimax at this point, because he believed, but he didn't know what to do with it. And so what did they do? They went home. Okay. But we are about to find out the implications that they have not yet known. As we look at verse 11, when the resurrection starts to declare the new relationship. Look at verse 11 with me. Eventually, Mary Mary returns to the tomb and as a Middle Eastern lady, if you know the culture there, she will be seen wailing very loudly, because that's the way it's done, to express her grief openly over the death of a loved one. And this time, perhaps because it's brighter, Mary decides that she too will bend and look into the tomb. And lo and behold, verse 12, she sees two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. Now, even for us or even for them, uh, appearance of angels are not a common affair. You don't see them appearing every other day, right? So when angels appear, that can only mean two things. One is that they are going to announce something that God is about to do. Or number two, they are announcing what God has already done. So now, the angel said to Mary, Woman, why are you crying? Perhaps the angel's question also carries the hint, Woman, There is no need to cry. But obviously Mary's grief got the better of her and she she does not yet understand what's happening and she just replies, They have taken my Lord away. And she's struggling to comprehend where is Jesus' body. And then verse 14 comes in, the turning point where her inconsolable grief will turn to become an uncontainable joy. But she doesn't know it yet, so we will follow with her from verse 14 on. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but amazingly, she did not realize that it was Jesus. And Jesus asked the Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? But Mary, overcome by her grief, takes Jesus to be a gardener, a gardener who is either ignorant, and didn't know the horrendous event that the whole Jerusalem was in uproar three days ago. And whose tomb this was. Or she thought that this is a gardener who is utterly insensitive to a woman, Middle Eastern woman, that's just wailing. Or perhaps she, is, he is a gardener that's totally cruel and has taken the body away. And so, Mary said, Sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him. I will get it. Just tell me, just tell me where is the body. Don't trouble you. I will go and carry him um, back. And Jesus said to her, Mary. The moment she hears her name being called, it was like a veil being lifted up from her eyes, and she turned and called out, in Aramaic, Rabboni, teacher. Well, she initially couldn't recognize it when she heard her voice. It's like a sheep who could recognize the voice of a shepherd and the shepherd calling her name. And you can imagine, right? She says, ah, Jesus reasoned. and instinctively. If you're married, what will you do? You'll probably be grabbing Jesus as if he's going to vaporize with the sunlight if you don't. So you see, you better grab hold of him. And that's when Jesus said in verse 17, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, verse 17, there are various interpretations to it, but I think it is likely saying this, that Jesus is likely saying, Do not grab hold of me as if I will disappear. I am not yet going to the Father. I will be. I've told you before in John 14, I will be, but not yet. Instead, Mary, verse 17 Go to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Of all the excitements and emotions that that comes up, Jesus declares a very important message that Mary must carry to the disciples who, like Peter, have ran away at the most important time of Jesus' journey. And the message is this, tell my brothers. You know, when Jesus says, tell my brothers, He also declares that they have a relationship. And in saying that, Jesus has actually forgiven the sins that they have done against Him. The first words of Jesus was not a reprimand, was not an argument, was not a scolding. He says, go and call my brothers. Go and tell my brothers. Now, before Jesus died, He told His disciples in John 14, He says this, I will be going to the Father. I will be going to the Father. But here, Jesus added a new dimension to the relationship with God, saying, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. At the resurrection of Jesus, He has not just forgiven the disciples, He has declared the new relationship that no one deserved. To a world that has just crucified Jesus, Jesus comes back to the world and starts to invite people to call God their father. You know, the question has to be this. Why resurrection is resurrection so crucial? If Jesus made this declaration that we can call God father, he dies and he never resurrects. You know what happens? Who knows this can be cashed out? Who knows that we can actually start praying and call God father? Jesus said that, he died, nothing happens. How can we know it's cashed out? But because Jesus rose from the dead, And he says, you call my God, your God, and my Father, your Father. That's how we started to pray our Heavenly Father. And be confident because our brother is alive and seated with our Father. So what marvelous decoration on the first Easter. What amazing grace that Christ uh, has given. And here is actually a most comforting words to those of us who love Jesus. But perhaps I grieve my sins against him. In this, Jesus is willing to forgive even the worst sinners. How bad can you go than to deny the Son of God on the day that he was crucified? But Jesus says, call my brothers. Jesus will forgive any sins if we come back to him. And this was not only for the 11 disciples, because later in verse 29-31, in fact the whole epistles that the apostles write in the New Testament tells us that we now have the same relationship with God as them. So resurrection has declared this new relationship between us and Christ, and between us and God our Father. I would like to pause at this moment to think about the implication and the implication of this uh, for us. For those of us who follow Jesus, we need to remember that we come to God as Father because of the grace of Jesus. And we need to remember this every day, lest the world, the devil and our own sinful nature will accuse us of being unworthy when we sin or to put us on the pedestal to say that we are good enough. We never live in a pendulum of Christian faith. Our relationship with God is always stable because it's not dependent on how we are today and how we are tomorrow. It's dependent on what Christ has done and what He has given to us. And this is something that Christians, we need to remember. But for those of us who are still considering Christianity, I pray that the words of Jesus actually reveals to you that Christianity... It's never a religion. Although it's always under religious category, right? When you like, fill in a form, what religion you are. But Christianity is never a religion. It is always a relationship. It is always a relationship. And in fact, it is a relationship between humans and our Creator. And we call our Creator Father. I pray that you will consider the words of Jesus carefully, if you're considering and that his resurrection declares this relationship that is impossible for any of us to achieve by our own means. But we must go back to the journey because it has not ended. Look at verse 18. So at the beating of Jesus, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he has said these things to her. Now up to now, only Mary has seen the resur- res- resurrected Jesus. Up to now, the ma- message is for the disciples alone. But all this will soon change because Jesus is going to declare a new commission that makes this forgiveness and this relationship um, for us and available for us. So look at verse 19 with me. Verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, when the doors, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. You know, as night approaches, the disciples are still frightened of the murderous Jewish leaders and the locked doors. John, he believed, but he doesn't know what to do with his belief. And uh, in their great fear of the world, suddenly all are about to change when their fear of the world will become a profound peace in the resurrected Jesus. And this is crucial because Jesus has a job for them to do. So look at verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them saying, Peace. Be with you, and Jesus showed them his hands and sight, making the disciples the eyewitness of his resurrected body. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw their Lord. And again, verse 21, Jesus said, Peace be with you. You know, if the disciples had taken the first peace to become a Jewish greeting, the second they realized that it's not. Um, in our previous generation, or even some of us uh, in Singapore, right? Singaporeans, we in the past we like to greet each other with, uh, Have you eaten? Have, have you heard that? My grandmother, when she brings me up, that's the thing. She doesn't say hi. She says, so, um, so imagine you have two friends, right? As a greeting, you say, Have you eaten? And you sit down and have a serious conversation. Suddenly one guy stands up and says, Have you eaten? It can't be a greeting, right? That I forgot to say that just now. I better say it again. Either, it's two things. Either you are going to initiate a meal together with your friend because it's time, or your friend says he has eaten, but he hears such a loud growl in the stomach. He says, "I don't think he has." So, have you eaten? Um, so, when the disciples they heard peace with you a second time, uh, it's not a greeting. They knew it was not a greeting, and exactly this is what Jesus has promised them in John 14. In fact, before Jesus died, he said this to them, to the disciples, "Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you." I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. While the world offers fear to the disciples, Jesus offered peace He has promised to them before He died. A peace that the world can never offer. A peace between humans and God. And this peace affirms forgiveness of sin, the removal of God's wrath, and uh, a, a new relationship with God. That the world, the devil, and our own sinful nature cannot remove. And on this on the basis of this faith, Jesus goes on to verse 21 to 23. Now, these three verses are actually quite difficult verses, and I'll need you to kind of flex your brain muscles for five for four minutes uh, with me. Just need to flex your muscles a little bit, and uh you'll all be easy here after this. Alright, so just for four minutes, uh look at these three verses. As I explain it to us, the commission that Jesus gave them. Verse 21, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. First of all, these words confirm what Jesus had said earlier in John 17. As you, talking to God the Father, have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So Jesus was God's perfect agent to fulfill God's mission, and he completed it. Now Jesus says, I'm going to send you for my mission, and you will go and complete it. They are given a new commission to be the witness of Jesus and to be the messenger of his words. What have they done? They have seen the miracles of Jesus. They have heard the words of Jesus. They have seen the death of Jesus. And they are the ones who have witnessed the resurrected body of Jesus. And Jesus gave them this new commission. He has said that in the past, but it is not starting yet. But at the resurrection of Jesus, he says, it has begun. And so you should go forth. And then he shows them his scars, and not, wish, not not just showing them that they are eyewitnesses, but they're also showing them that what is it going to cost them when they go out on this mission. Know the cost before you go out. And Jesus says, This is the cost. And why is it so costly? Because the disciples, they are going into the same world, they have just killed Jesus. You're going to the same world to proclaim about me, and they will not like you. Jesus said that early on in John 17, in, in the conversation, he says, To God, I have given them, the disciples, your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. So it will be costly to be witnesses and messengers of Jesus. But do not fear. As soon as Jesus declared this new commission, he says, verse 22, he breathed and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathed. Well, much can be said about verse 22, uh, but time will not allow us to... Um, expound all the various options or thoughts. But one very helpful um, explanation of verse 22 is that it's symbolic of what will happen at the Pentecost and that they will not go out on this new commission by their own strength because the Holy Spirit will be with them uh, to do it. In fact, Jesus has promised this earlier on in John 14. He says this, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. They will receive the Holy Spirit when Jesus returns to the Father. Elsewhere, Jesus said, Stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes to you, and then you'll go out to proclaim the gospel. Because you are not going out by your own strength, you are going out by the Holy Spirit as well and finally verse 23 one and a half more minute to exercise your brain juice a little bit jesus then says to the disciples if you forgive anyone's sins their sins are forgiven if you do not forgive them they will not be forgiven when jesus said that what does he mean does he mean that the disciples now can just go okay forgiven not forgiven, I don't like, no, for, not forgiven, forgiven. Is that what Jesus is saying about the disciples? Um, surely not. We have to look at the context of what Jesus meant uh, by this. So remember three things, right? Jesus has forgiven them, calling them brothers. Jesus has given them peace in the Father. And Jesus has promised them the Holy Spirit. So now their new commission is to be the witnesses and messengers to the rest of the world so that we too May believe in Jesus. So their mission is not to go out and decide whose sins are forgiven. Their mission is to go out and bear witness, proclaiming the words of Jesus. And then forgiveness is tied to the message, not the messenger. Let me say again forgiveness is tied to the message and not the messenger. So the messengers can change, the message never changes. And when a person a responds to the message, the testimony about Jesus will determine whether the person's sins is or is not forgiven. If a person hears the testimony of the disciples, is convinced of his or her sins, and comes to Jesus for forgiveness, the message of the messenger itself will testify that the person is forgiven. If a person hears the message of Jesus and decides nope, no Jesus for me, and says, I do not want Jesus, and I do not need Jesus. The message of the gospel will testify that this person's sins remains. Because what is happening when the person rejects the message of Jesus, the person says, nope, I'm good, leave everything that I need, I'll solve my own problems, and so it will be. So the message of the messenger will declare, whether a person's sins is or is not forgiven. So now resurrection, he declares a new relationship. The resurrection declares a new commission. And so this commission will be carried out by the disciples and is written in the Bible. And so this is the message that has been brought on for the last 2,000 years, even up to today. And we can receive this forgiveness and this new relationship. Finally, all, all this sounds good, right? But we, some people ask this question, but how do we really believe in Jesus, in resurrection, in the forgiveness of Jesus, in the new relationship? How can we really believe if we cannot see Jesus? Does this sound familiar? We have our own versions in our, in our generations. But this objection is addressed by Jesus when he appears to Thomas. So look at verse uh, 24 to 31 when he declares the way to faith. Look at verse 24 with me. When all these are happening, Thomas, also known as Didemus 1 of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now early on, when Mary saw Jesus, she believed and said to the disciples, We have seen the Lord. And the disciples, when they saw Jesus, they believed and they told Thomas, We have seen the Lord. And Thomas, he heard the news and he, no, he didn't. Thomas said, Unless I see the Lord, I, I will not believe. In fact, Thomas goes on, Unless I see the nail marks on his hands and put my finger where the nails are, wait a minute, there are, three, there are three people on the cross. Unless I touch the sight of him, I will not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But what is about to happen is going to happen to Thomas nevertheless. What has happened to Mary where grief turns to joy? What happens to the disciples when fear turns to peace? It's going to happen to Thomas where his determined doubt will be transformed to the greatest proclamation of faith up to this point of Christianity. And he too has to become the messengers of the gospel. So look at verse 26 with me. Verse 26. A week later, Jesus disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them the doors were locked Jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you well this is the first time Thomas uh, was there and peace be with you to Thomas then he said to Thomas put your finger here see my hands reach out your hand and put it into my sight stop doubting and believe but Jesus knew what Thomas demanded and Jesus amazingly says alright I'm going to give it to you but after he did that Jesus said, stop doubting, believe. Why did Jesus say to Thomas, stop doubting and believe? Is it wrong for Thomas to desire to see Jesus? After didn't Mary long to see Jesus and she was full of joy, the disciples long to see Jesus. Even Christians now, Well, we long to see Jesus uh, when he appears. Is that wrong for Thomas to want that? As you look at it carefully, the problem for Thomas It's not that he desires to see Jesus. But he's demanding, unless I see him, I will not believe. But Jesus says, that's the way that the world has to believe. And Jesus goes on to verse 29. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. This is something that our, our generation, we have, right? That Unless I see God, if, better see if I can put him in a laboratory, I will not believe. Unless he does something according to what I ask him to do, I will not believe. Unless, this is the way that um, it has been from the first day. But Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And Jesus is speaking about Christianity all through history. For we are to believe not by seeing, but through eyewitnesses' accounts. And the workings of God's Holy Spirit in us. So, as we pause for a moment here, I just want to help us to think: How do we usually live the most part of our lives? The reality is, we live most part of our lives not as eyewitnesses, but responding to eyewitness. We we respond to life as we read newspapers, right? The eyewitness of someone else, reporters or somebody else, where we hear the radio. If you're driving car, traffic news. This is oh, No, P I E jam. Please don't go. Please. Don't, I'll go ahead and check it out. No, you listen and say somebody's eyewitness better, better siam, right? Better avoid. When we go to school and study history, none of us were alive in the history. And you know what? When our children grow up or our grandchildren grow up, they will be hearing our eyewitness account that Singapore has a great founder. They will never, have, they will never meet him. But they will have to trust that we have met him and we have seen him and we have seen how he has changed Singapore. They will have no chance. But they will have to believe. In fact, this is not a new thing even in Jesus' time. In Jesus' time, or even before that, God's way of people believing in Him, that He's a good God, is by eyewitness account. You know, in Deuteronomy 6, it's a shema where God says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And this is what comes in. Let me look at it uh, with you. Deuteronomy 6, these are the words of God uh, way before Jesus appeared. And He says, These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. And what are you supposed to do? Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. When you walk along the road. When you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your forehead. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, be careful that you do not forget the Lord and brought, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You know what? All through histories, we live on I witness account, and by Jesus' time, people live on eyewitness account, and that's what has happened. Like Israel, a majority of humanity, we live our lives based on eyewitness testimony. So if you're a person who is considering Christianity, can I suggest to us that to see whether Christianity is true is not to go to science, but to check whether this account, this historical account is true or not. I think there's some books behind that talks about the history of Jesus and stuff. Uh, I think if you're considering about Christianity, probably science is not the best place to go. A lot of things don't go to science. But the authenticity is whether the historical account is genuine. So this is where uh, we'll look at it um, to find out if Jesus is true. As we look finally in verse 30 to 31, that the tomb will not keep its followers... Why were the fearful disciples and Thomas willing to die in the hands of the world for the sake of proclaiming this new commission of this new relationship for us with God as our Father? Why do Christians all through centuries and millenniums are so willing to do it? And the answer is this. The answer is this. The eyewitness account of Jesus is true. And for that, they know that because the tomb cannot keep Jesus but has to give him up on the day of resurrection they know that the tomb cannot and will not keep the followers of Jesus. On the day when Jesus comes down, the tomb and death has to give up Christians and give them up for eternal life and for that they are willing to live it out because they have seen it with their eyes that Jesus has done it and because Jesus has done it, he says that you guys will have it and this is why uh, all followers of Jesus said exactly the same thing as what Thomas said, as he said in verse twenty-eight, "My Lord and my God." And so here Thomas ends, uh, John ends, with verse thirty to 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in His name. If you've never believed in Jesus, but would like to learn more, I think later Nick will tell us um, ways to learn and explore Christianity. For those of us who uh, have never believed, but you are convinced that Jesus is the way, I invite you to pray with us and also speak to us, uh, whether it's your friend or to me or uh, one of those who are upstage just now to um, talk about it. But if you are a follower of Jesus, then this great day is a day to rejoice for us. And I pray that like Mary, the disciples and Thomas, that we will be renewed in our joy, renewed in our peace and be renewed in our faith. Whatever circumstances we are in right now, by looking to the empty tomb and by reading and knowing that account is true. But Jesus' very word says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Shall we pray to our God and our Father? (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for the death and resurrection of Jesus. We believe that Jesus died on the cross, but more so he rose from the dead on the first Easter. We acknowledge that Jesus is our Lord and our God, so forgive us our sins. Help us to live for you. Strengthen us by your Holy Spirit that we may live for you each day. Open our eyes and keep our faith fresh and our minds alert to the words of Jesus so that we may be filled with joy and peace and that our faith may be strengthened to continue to the day where Christ comes back for us. In his name we pray. Amen.